Welcome. You're listening to Building the Backend, a podcast for data architects, where we will uncover what's working and what's not across the data landscape. I'm your host, Travis Lawrence. Join me on a journey to understand the best patterns, tools, and frameworks for implementing modern data architectures. Each week, I'll interview data leaders and architects like the Vice President of Engineering at LinkedIn or the founder of Data Kitchen and employees at Microsoft and Google and many other top companies. To start off the new year, I have put together a quick 60-second survey to help me better understand how I can best serve you. Go to buildingthebackend.com slash survey to complete it. And if you do, your next coffee is on me, aka I will email you a Starbucks gift card. If you're hearing this message, then the survey is still live, so act fast and help me improve the podcast. Without further ado, let's jump into today's episode. In today's episode, we will speak with Peter Voss and discuss the current landscape of AI, the next wave of AI called Artificial General Intelligence, and how organizations today can level up their chatbots to create satisfied customers. Peter Voss is a serial entrepreneur and pioneer in the AI space who also coined the term AGI, Artificial General Intelligence, with fellow luminaries in the space. At the age of 25, Peter IPO'd a company he started that grew to over 400 people. Since then, he's been focusing on AI and recently launched iGo, an intelligent cognitive assistant that delivers highly intelligent and hyper-personalized conversational assistance at scale for the enterprise. Let's jump in. At the age of 25, you launched your first company that IPO'd as a 400-person software hardware solutions company. Not a small feat. Can you share a little bit more about your previous experience and how you ended up where you are today, founding iGo? Yes, that was super exciting to to go through that from the garage, 400 people, and made a lot of mistakes along the way as well. But we did end up having a successful IPO and learned a lot in, in that. And so I started out as a hardware engine, hardware engineer, started my company building specialized hardware. Then I fell in love, love with software and my company really turned into a software company, built, developed an ERP system from scratch, a comprehensive uh, system targeting medium sized businesses and worked very closely with businesses to really allow them to have their own computer systems, which at that time was still quite rare. And so that, that was the success of the company I took uh, public. And it's when I exited this company, I had enough time on my hands to think, what is the big project I wanted to handle? And what is the thing that has frustrated me about software? And what it really is that software inherently is quite dumb. And even though I'm I'm very proud of my own software, it still is dumb. If if you don't think of something and people use it in a way you didn't anticipate, it'll just crash or give you some uh, wrong answer or whatever. So uh, that's really 25 years ago I embarked on this mission to figure out how to bring intelligence to software. And I took off five years to study intelligence uh, really from all different angles, starting with philosophy, epistemology, theory of knowledge. How do we know anything? What is reality? How do we know reality? What is certainty? But also cognitive psychology, psychometrics. How do we measure intelligence? Is IQ test meaningful? What do they measure? What is important in intelligence? How does our intelligence differ from animal intelligence? And how do children learn? Basically, all different angles of understanding, deeply understanding intelligence to be able to 
build, hopefully build intelligent systems. Obviously, studied a lot of AI as well and what people had done before in the field of AI. And the thing that struck me that became very obvious is that the field of AI had really lost its way from when the term was coined 60 odd years ago. It was about building thinking machines that can think and learn and reason the way humans do. But that turned out to be incredibly difficult. So basically what happened is AI became narrow AI. So you pick a particular problem like playing chess or container optimization or traffic control or trying to zero on cancer diagnosis. But it's really the intelligence of the programmer or the data scientist that is used to solve the problem using a computer as a tool. So the AI is really doesn't have that intelligence inherently in it. It's the intelligence of the, the, the program, external intelligence that is sort of put into code and then frozen in, in time uh, pretty much. And so in 2001, I got together with uh, several other people and we published a book and we're looking for a book title to to say we wanted to recapture the original dream of AI. And I coined the term with two other people, artificial general intelligence, AGI, which is now quite nice to hear that a lot of people are using it. And that's really the direction that we're taking and that what we're focusing on is to have a system where the intelligence is in the machine and ultimately get back to building machines that can think and reason and learn the way humans do. And this, this, the research that I did basically was the foundation of two commercial companies, two research companies and two commercial companies that I, I founded in the last 20 years. So initially I had a adaptive AI for five years. We were in R and D mode, basically taking the ideas that I'd built up over the five years and try and experiment around with them, build various prototypes and eventually come up with a platform that we then commercialized in a company called Smart Action, automating phone calls intelligently. Whereas everybody hates it when you talk to a machine, when you call a company and you talk to a machine and you have to press one for this or it just barely understands you. And so in, in smart action, we basically have these things are called IVR, interactive voice response. So we have an IVR with a brain so that it has much deeper language understanding. It remembers what you said earlier and so on. So that was my first commercial company utilizing nascent AGI technology, if, if we can call it that, or the the approach. However, I, I sold the company to start what is now iGo.ai and to, to be able to spend more time on further developing the technology. So we've then over several years, again, like four or five year period, developed the second generation of the technology. And this is, we now started commercializing this just over a year ago in iGo.ai. Okay. Awesome. So just to summarize, you, you sold, you know, IPO, that sort of solutions, hardware company, 25 plus years ago. You then spent some time doing some R&D research where you then founded this other kind of um, AI machine learning sort of solution company to focus on voice. And then you exited out of that where you then transitioned to IGO. Correct. You already dived into this a little bit, but you started mentioning this term called narrow AI. I, I guess the alternate is general AI. So, now, as powerful as the, uh, machine learning, deep learning, and, and these big data approaches are, it's also becoming increasingly apparent that 
you're not going to get anywhere near human-level intelligence, that they're missing some key characteristics of intelligence. So as far as achieving AGI or the original idea of AI and having really intelligent systems, machine learning, deep learning is, is really a dead end. It's, it's not going to get us there. And I think people are increasingly realizing that there's a greater and greater understanding or acceptance of that, and they're looking for solutions. But machine learning has such a lot of momentum. Whole new mm-hmm. companies have been, billion-dollar companies have been formed, building specialized hardware, providing data, data processing, GPUs, and so on. So that has the momentum, and just... Even last year, Microsoft invested a billion dollars in OpenAI, and the CEO of OpenAI says, we can get to human-level intelligence, we just need more data. Now, I think he is profoundly wrong in that assessment, because you're getting diminishing returns for every 10x of increase in data and computing power. Uh, you're getting less and less of an increase in in intelligence. And I think we're seeing that on the commercial side in the actual applications when companies are actually trying to use this technology commercially and they're hitting a brick wall very quickly when they need flexible intelligence. That makes a lot of sense. And Would you say there are different use cases? You mentioned that narrow AI is going to hit a wall, like you can't transition from narrow AI to general AI, it's completely different architectures or solutions. Would you say that there are different use cases and that sometimes in like in the future, you know, general AI may not solve all the use cases, you will still have narrow AI for some things or will everything transition to that more general AI? Oh, yeah, no, absolutely. I believe the same way that, if, you know, in humans, you have specialists. Mm-hmm. There will be AIs that are, that specialize on doing something. So you could have an AGI that has very broad intelligence and can do lots of things, but it's not going to beat a purpose-built chess computer, if we just want to sure. use that, that example. That's just purpose-built for that because it's been optimized for that. And the same with vision. If you have uh, vision computers in a, an autonomous car, those vision computers are, again, optimized hardware, software-wise and at every level to do that job. And a, a general-purpose AI will simply not be able to, to do that. But you really need to see the AGI as the orchestrator or the high-level intelligence that will direct these specialized systems. And here's actually sort of something interesting that uh, I realized many years ago is that AGI is the ultimate tool user, which makes us as humans also so powerful that we can use tools to overcome our physical limitations and mental limitations. So uh, in the same way, AGI will be a very powerful tool user, but even more so than humans because it can deeply integrate with the tools. An obvious example would be a calculator. It could access a calculator just natively, basically, as, as part of its brain, even though the architecture may not be designed as a calculator, but it can, or it can instantly call up any web page on the web and get that information instantaneously, but it'll still be tool using it as a tool. Mm-hmm. Uh, that makes sense. What are the primary use cases that you see this general intelligence being used in the maybe near future, or I guess, for the primary use cases for it? 
Yes, the, we actually, when we started our uh, R&D in the early 2000s, we looked at robotics, basically having a system that interacts with the world, that has lots of different sensors, you can hear sound, vision, and, and all of that, and can interact with the world and learn by interacting with the world. So ultimately, I do see AGI being de deployed within robotics. However, that's really hard to deal with sure. all of the mechanical issues, or even if you have virtual robots in a virtual world, even that has, is, is just incredibly hard to deal with vision and sound and all of that. So that, that is why we focused on conversation, conversational AI, basically just either voice or text as an interaction and focus on that. So I, I see that is the, the most obvious place to start building AGI systems. And that, that's, of course, what our company does. And if you can have a, an AGI that, or human-level conversational, let's call it a chatbot, that can really understand like a human does and be a tool user, that's incredibly powerful. Whether a corporation is using that internally to help their staff, as each of their staff members can have a, a personal assistant or 20 personal assistants, your customers can have their own personalized, hyper-personalized concierge assistant so that your customer interacting with your company, like a re retailer, for example, or an insurance company or, or whatever, will intimately know all about you in terms of how you want to, want to interact with the, the, the company. So imagine contacting your cable company and you interact with your personalized concierge bot that has all the history of what you bought, what problems you've had. And if previously you had to tell them that my reception in the kitchen is really terrible and the router is in the garage or and it's 50, mm -hmm. 50 feet apart or whatever, Igo would know that and you wouldn't have to start from scratch and explain it and can, could say, have you got that router upgrade yet mm -hmm. or that, that kind of thing. Right. So that, that personalized service. And then, of course, at the individual level, for us each to have a super Siri, Alexa or something, but that's really yours, you own it, it's hyper-personalized to you, can be like a little angel on your shoulder as well to advise you and keep you out of trouble apart from helping with stuff. So that to me is, these are very obvious use cases for conversational AI with a brain. Awesome. So I guess iGo is focusing right now on the chat side, whether that's voice, text, stuff right. there. Yeah, that's at the moment a very fast growing area. So mm -hmm. what we're finding, we, we're working with large enterprise clients across the board now, whether it's cable company or, or in insurance or medical or retailer, they all have the same problem that their customers want to interact with them uh, using chat. And the chatbots that they can find that they've tried to implement, just not cutting it. And we see basically just as we crank up the IQ, we're still a long way from human level intelligence at this point, but we believe the architecture that we have, the approach we have, allows us to continually increase that, that intelligence. Yeah. And then ultimately uh, we'll get back to robotics, adding extra sensors and. Yeah. It takes time because like you're saying, it's very complex and yeah, just personally. One of the quickest ways to frustrate me is when I have to call into one of these help desk numbers and you're spun into this automated system and the system, the options don't match your use case or your problem and you're, you just go in this loop and then you try to like, what's the quickest way to get to a human being because this is not working. So I can totally see that being... 
Yeah, ab- absolutely. And our customers also need to be educated because at the moment they often are still so much in the only thing they know is like having menus. Select one, two, three, four, five. And now on the chatbots, you just get a menu of options. But as you say, well, what if that isn't none of those seem to apply to me? What we do with iGo is you interact with natural language. But it's just say we have to also educate our customers to say, you really want to use natural language. You say, how can I help you? And then to be able to zero in on what specifically it is. And then Igo may be able to help directly or we direct it to a human, but then we can also pass it to the right level of expertise and with the, 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 a lot of the details already having been established. Yeah, I think recently I've, I've caught into my cable company because maybe my internet was out. And I think through a voice prompt, it was able to reset the router remotely all mm-hmm. without talking to a human. Now, mm-hmm. that, that was pretty impressive. And I guess what, yeah. what I go, you tie in these automations into that and you're, you're really efficient and you get what the customer needs, which is awesome. Right. I was watching one of your videos where you compared iGo to Alexa. Mm-hmm. And that, that was very impressive. Could you elaborate to where Alexa breaks down by AI? Or Igo, yeah, absolutely. We call we call Igo a chatbot with a brain, and at the moment, every other chatbot does not have a brain, and that's just a fact. The technology they use is basically a deep learning categorizer that finds one one of however many hundred of different intents that the system has been programmed to. So if you say blah 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 weather, it'll trigger the weather. Thing And then somebody wrote a little piece of software to give you the weather. But if you say, I hate Uber, don't ever give me Uber again, it'll still, it'll trigger the Uber app. And then somebody wrote the Uber app. Okay, where do you want to go? How many people are going? And do you want Uber X? That kind of thing. So it's a little, it's a combination of intent categorizer that just puts you into one of several slots. And then Mm -hmm. somebody wrote a little program to actually do what you want to do. And Alexa, Siri, they all work on that principle. They don't take context into account. They don't have memory. They don't remember what you said two sentences ago, never mind what you said last week or last month. They don't have deep passing, deep understanding. They just trigger on patterns, keyword or key phrase patterns. And they don't have any reasoning abilities. They don't have deep understanding. They don't have reasoning ability. They can't disambiguate if there's something that's ambiguous that you say. So because they don't have a brain, they simply can't do that. So you really cannot have a a conversation, a real conversation with them. Now, if if you know what they can do and how you can get them to do it, then they can be very useful. One shot thing, give me the weather or turn on the lights or or whatever, or find me an Italian restaurant then they, they can do a good job of it. But wherever you need to, you expect to have an ongoing conversation, they simply can't do that. But more importantly, because they don't have memory, they also cannot be personalized to you. They don't remember what, what interactions you've had with them earlier and, and, and previously. And that's those are very severe limitations. So, yeah, it, it really is chalk and cheese. And why do you think Alexa, Microsoft, with... Cortana, then Apple, and Google. Why haven't they made their chatbots more sophisticated? Is it are there other regulations, or is it maybe the consumers aren't ready to have these smart devices in the rooms? What's why haven't these large corporations? It, it's them? a very good question, and obviously we've asked ourselves that many times, and. Our investors and potential investors <laughs> obviously ask that question: How can you little 
tiny little startup possibly have something that the, the big guys don't have? And there, there are several, several answers to that. One of them is it's, a, it's an accident of history that it's basically the big companies discovered deep learning, machine learning, as I said, probably about nine years ago or so. So that's the hammer they've got. So to them, everything looks like a nail. All of their investments, the people they hire, the top management, the equipment that they have, everything is basically focused on deep learning, machine learning. They have a lot of data. They have a lot of computing power. That's the hammer they've got. So everything looks like a nail. So if there are any voices out there saying that you're fundamentally on a dead end, you're fundamentally on the wrong track, big companies just don't operate that way. It's like a big oil tanker. You can't just switch them around. So it's just the success of deep learning, machine learning, driving the advertising revenue or helping them get self-driving cars working or whatever is trapping them really. They're trapped by their own success. So there's a lot to unpack there. What does the technical architecture look like for this general AR, artificial general intelligence? What's the storage pattern look like? How does, so I'm a data engineer. I'm by no means an expert, barely understand the stuff. Like where, where do you start? What does that look like? I categorize them as a cognitive architecture. So you're basically saying, what does intelligence require? What capabilities does a brain need to have to be intelligent? And a cognitive architecture need, needs to inherently encompass, it needs to implement all of these key requirements. So it needs to be able to, and if you're doing language, it needs to be able to deeply pass a sentence. You can't just do a broad pattern matching. It has to deeply understand the sentence or analyze the sentence. It needs to be able to reason about it. It needs to be able to learn that. So the architecture, as I say, the, the Classification is a cognitive architecture. Now, cognitive architectures have been around for a while, and they haven't been terribly successful up to now. But then 10 years ago, neural networks weren't terribly successful either. They don't work until they do, until somebody figures out how to make them work. The reason cognitive architectures haven't worked that well is that people have taken the sort of traditionally good engineering approach of having a very modular system. So you say, okay, we need a parser. What's the best parser? A Stanford parser. Okay, we'll use a Stanford parser. We need some memory. We'll use some kind of a, a graph database. So what's a good graph database? Okay, plug that in. We need a reasoning engine. So they have these different components that really don't talk to each other very well. There's a massive impedance mismatch in how they operate. They can't, they can't be deeply integrated. And that's basically what we, what I discovered was the limitation of current cognitive architectures. So to make this work, to, to get AGI working with the cognitive architecture, you need a super high performance knowledge graph that basically encodes the knowledge and not just the, the static knowledge, but also skills that you learn. So if there's a certain procedure that you have to follow, that is also a skill that has to be uh, embedded in your knowledge graph. It has to be part of your knowledge graph. That knowledge graph has to be able to encode concepts, abstract concepts. So it needs to be a very particular type of, of knowledge graph. And then all of the components that you have, like your language parser, has to be deeply integrated with a knowledge graph to be able to make sense of what the person is saying. And then as you make sense of it, it needs to be added to your knowledge graph. It needs to be integrated into your knowledge graph. If I, for example, if I say my sister moved to Oregon in some chat, customer support chat or whatever, my sister moved to Oregon, you need to, okay, my sister, you know, my who I'm talking about in your knowledge graph, it's the self-sister relationship. 
Now, do you know any sisters? Does he have one sister that you know about? Does he have three sisters? And moved to Oregon. Okay, Oregon. Do I know what Oregon is? Moved. What are, what are the implications? So if you can resolve it, then you can basically add to your existing knowledge graph that new knowledge that you've now acquired. And it's immediately available for use. The next sentence you might say, please send us some flowers. Okay. That's obviously you're not going to send them to an old address. So what's a new address? So it's basically having a high performance knowledge graph and the knowledge graph we developed is two orders of magnitude faster than any commercially available graph database. And all of the components that we developed, the reasoning engine, the parser is all stuff we developed from the ground up so that they could be deeply integrated. So those are, that's basically our, the, 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 those are the key components of our architecture and how they, how they differ from traditional cognitive architectures. Okay, great. And if I'm an organization and I'm deploying IGO's technology, does it run in my cloud? Does it run on your cloud and we send data to you? How how does that work? Yeah, so we decided with IGO uh, not to follow the SaaS model because A, companies do tend to have their own cloud services now. That's very Mm -hmm. common. And they much prefer to have software behind their firewall. So we provide our brain, our engine, to be deployed behind their firewall, integrated into the system. Because in any case, it needs to be deeply integrated with their backend systems, or their whatever systems they have. So that is how we actually offer our system. So we then license the technology running in their cloud behind their firewall. And, and we, help them in, we help them integ- integ- set it up and integrate it, basically. And then... What, what's the tech stack that it's running off of? We, we typically deploy in Kubernetes and it's, we use .NET. So it's .NET Core that we implement. Awesome. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Is, it, is this a fair summarization? It may be totally wrong, but IGO is a sort of custom solution of the storage, the processing, all these, sort of these key facets that are needed for this general AI. But to make that work, you have these sort of narrow focused AI solutions within that. And it's up to the um, artificial general intelligence to decide what's the right one. And how do you tie it all together? Yeah, that, that is exactly right. Now, as I said, we're a long way from human level general intelligence. Sure. And to have the broad knowledge that we have just by growing up and living in the real world, massive amounts of just common sense information that that we have Mm -hmm. and reasoning that we can do. And to put that into an AGI, even if our technology was powerful enough to do it, it, it's a huge job to to get that, that knowledge into the system. Practically speaking, what we do is we have this core of a knowledge of an ontology of, of knowledge that is common across all of our customers. That okay. would be about people and places and how to greet somebody and, you know, how to close off a conversation, how to get an address, how to disambiguate things. So that's common across all applications and that's in a common red core. And we keep expanding that core all the time as we do more development of our, our system. Then there is a a middle core, an extension to the core that is very customer and application specific. So if, for example, we're doing diabetes management for somebody, we're giving, providing somebody a a, a bot that'll help them manage their diabetes, then that second layer will have all of the ontology, uh, the terms required for diabetes management, which might be a food database, exercise and medical terms and so on. It also has whatever business rules you have in there. If somebody 
says something of a certain type that you might want to escalate it or have an alert or, or, or something like that. In that middle layer, you also have the APIs that go to the backend system and basically translates information that comes from, from the backend system, translates it into the knowledge graph in the brain. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And do you, when you integrate with the customer's data, are they strictly calling APIs for depending on kind of the question asked? Or do you import a lot or replicate a lot of this data into your system? To build? So it's, it's a combination of that. Obviously, anything that's static, it makes sense to have that in the brain and we can import that. So, for example, we one of the applications is to, to do with motor vehicles. So we can import all the makes and models of cars and the different colors available, even obscure colors that somebody dreamt up some new name. We can import that on a regular basis, and then it's in Igo's brain, and it's, it's available for that. But obviously, any dynamic information, we have to call APIs uh, for mm -hmm. that. Ontology will basically have the placeholder for that information, and then when it's imported, it goes in the brain and can be used normally. But it, it's basically tagged as being dynamic information that needs to be imported when you need or it needs to be refreshed. And the same way of pushing back new information that you've changed your address or you've changed your phone number or something to push that back. So it's a combination of that. And part of our architecture is actually we have an API server that translates from the API, the, the, the data formats that they provide to the data format we need in the brain ontology. What's been your biggest lesson learned building out AI solutions? First of all, that it's really hard. <laughs> so AI is really hard. The other lesson is how difficult it is to persuade people to think for themselves in terms of what intelligence really requires and that deep learning, machine learning isn't the right path. It's basically... People say everybody's doing the big, all the big guys are doing machine learning, deep learning. That has to be the right thing. They listen to reason or even if they listen to it and they say, yeah, that makes sense, but it's still difficult for them to then go against, uh, go against the trend. The other thing I'd like to mention is what I call the AGI trap. And I realized the AGI trap, the existence of that early on before I started smart action but fell into it in smart action. And that is building a general purpose system is obviously much harder than building a narrow AI system where you have the external intelligence you're turning into code. So when you're implementing customers, there is tremendous pressure to do it quicker and cheaper by hard coding stuff, by basically using narrow AI or just, just okay, right. we need this. We, we don't need a brain to sort it out. We know that if this, then that. And that's the narrow AI trap. So basically, your AGI project or AGI company can very rapidly turn into a narrow AI company. There's tremendous pressure, and whether mm -hmm. it's through shareholders or just time pressure. Sure. And this is why when I started iGo.ai, we took five years. Where we took on no customers on purpose. We just built up a, a, a very strong team of what we call AI psychologists because most of them aren't programmers. They're actually linguists and cognitive psychologists to build up the technology. And also the funding we have now and the, the partners that we have agree with our philosophy that we have to continue on the AGI path, on the develop, ongoing development path while we're commercializing so that we don't fall into AGI trap. Yeah, I, mean, I could see folks easily falling into that trap if you can have a quick solution for your immediate use case. Um, so wrapping up, 
Do you have a favorite data book that you would recommend and why? Well, there's so many different books that I've read, but I, I always like to recommend The Mind's Eye, which is a philosophy futurist book, Daniel Dennett and Douglas Hofstadter. It's okay. a bunch of short stories, just fascinating, really good read, The Mind's Eye. Awesome. I'll have to check that one out. Yeah, mm -hmm. I've heard of that. And then where can our listeners reach out if they want to learn more? and connect with you? Yes, that's easy. Igo.ai, our website. We have links to articles and videos and so on. Also, my articles are also on medium.com, uh, mm -hmm. petervossmedium.com. But there's a link on our website to, to that as well. So yeah, just our website and anybody wants to contact me directly, peter at igo.ai. Awesome. And then for the folks listening, Igo is spelt... A-I-G-O. And then, yeah, definitely recommend checking out the Medium articles that Peter's wrote. They're very in-depth. There's a lot out there in this space. And I thoroughly enjoyed reading a handful of those. So thank you, Peter, for coming on the show. I really enjoyed this conversation. I got a lot out of it. And I'm sure our listeners will, too. So thank you. Thanks for having me. It was fun. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Building the Backend. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. If you want to receive the latest data news in your inbox, join the newsletter at buildingthebackend.com. See you next time, Data Nation.